0: Welcome to the Global Business Women's Pod, brought to you by the Greater Houston Women's Chamber of Commerce. I am Susan Dyson and proud to be the CEO, President and Founder of the Chamber. Please join us for this empowering podcast every Thursday at 6 p.m. Alrighty, folks, thank you so much for being here, and thank you, Adam, for flying in uh, specifically for this luncheon. And we're super excited to hear about your book.
1: Thank you. But
0: um, before we begin, just give us a little insight
1: on who you are. Sure. I'm I'm a professor of marketing and psychology at New York University Stern School of Business. Um, I am originally from South Africa, then I went to Australia, spent about 16 years there until I was in my early 20s, and then I've been in the US for about 20 years. Um, this is my third book, and, um, yeah, I'm just happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. It's Absolutely. nice to be here. Absolutely. So what inspired you to write this book? Yeah, so the book the book is called Anatomy of a Breakthrough, and it's about um, being stuck and getting unstuck. And I think of stuckness as... An experience where you're in a place you don't want to be for an extended period of time. It's not like a daily momentary frustration. It's like when you're, you ask people and they'll say something like, you know, I'm, I'm in a work situation I don't want to be in, or I'm a creative and I can't come up with ideas, and I've had a block for weeks or months or sometimes years or decades. Uh, and so the book was a sort of attempt over a 20-year period to work out the best recipe, a kind of roadmap for getting unstuck. And it was inspired, I think, in large part by my own personal experiences. Being stuck is a kind of universal experience. Um, When I was an undergrad in Australia a long time ago, um, I had no idea what I wanted to do. I was studying actuarial science, which is this sort of financial math course. And I didn't like it. And a professor came in and he said to us, if you stay in this course for another week, I was on a fellowship, he said, you're going to have to start paying back the money if you then quit. So that was my sign to get out. So I left. the idea of having to pay that money back, it had all been spent, I've got to be honest, on a a very inexpensive car that didn't really work. But anyway, that's another story. But I, so I said to the professor, I can't do this anymore, and so I left, but I had no idea what to do with myself, and I spent six months effectively being stuck. And I sat in on one course as an undergrad after another, just sitting in on English courses, philosophy courses, math courses, law courses, psychology, everything you can imagine, and kind of experimented my way through to getting unstuck. And I figured out that law and psychology were the things I wanted to do. And mm-hmm. that's, so that's what I ended up doing. And it got me very interested in this idea that there, there are things you can do to get unstuck, in, and there must be a roadmap, a sort of scientifically informed roadmap. And so I spent a lot of time researching all the components of that roadmap that are now in this book. It's a 20-year culmination of that effort.
0: So what are some key takeaways from the book that our audience can take home today?
1: Yeah, so the book breaks this road map down. Oh, I break the roadmap down into three, I <laughs> guess. Um, the book doesn't do the thing. It's, there are three sections. Um, and the, the basic idea is that um, I think a lot of us, when we feel stuck or fixed in place, there's a human instinct that evolutionarily it makes a lot of sense if you're physically trapped to flail, you know, to fight your way out, and we're very good at that. You read of these stories of hysterical strength where someone finds someone trapped under something heavy and they pick it up and they're like, I don't know where that strength came from, which is incredibly adaptive. You get that rush of adrenaline and it makes you superhuman. But unfortunately that same response, we confuse being stuck in a place we don't wanna be, metaphorically or emotionally, for that kind of physical stuckness and it makes us flail. And so we act rashly, often in the wrong way. So the first thing you've got to do is essentially slow down and deal with the emotional consequences of being stuck. So I talk a lot about that in the book. There are three whole chapters devoted to this idea. And then once you deal with the fact that you are where you are, you've then got to strategize and then act. So those are the two other sections. So it's really, I break them down into heart, how you respond emotionally, head, how you respond strategically, and habit, what you actually do. Um, And, you know, there are a lot of, specific anecdotes from people who are just unusually good at getting unstuck, who've who've made incredible breakthroughs. I talk about men and women in all sorts of different areas, athletes, Olympians, um, people that I had the the privilege of speaking to over the last 20 years, everyday people too, um, business people. I talk about some of the largest businesses in the world that we think of as having this very smooth run to success. But actually, when you look back, you'll see that they were stuck many times. I think that's also really important is to recognize that this is a universal experience. So you, you feel your own stuckness, it's very present for you, but when you look at other people, they share often their greatest triumphs. Social media means that everyone shares the best 1% of their lives, and so it's easy to imagine that you're isolated in feeling frustration. Mm-hmm. And so this book is a sort of attempt to demystify it, and that's where I begin is by saying, hey look, here are a whole lot of people or businesses or organizations that struggled and yet they succeeded too.
0: So, women specifically, I feel, tend to get stuck even more because it's almost like you're stuck under a wave, right? You have children, you have your job that you can't leave because yeah. you have to make money for those children. Um, you might have household obligations. So for women specifically, what can we do to get over that emotional rut, over that um, work rut? What, what advice would you give?
1: Yeah. I, I'm indebted to my wife on this front because she. we have two kids. and. Um, She was working in executive search at some big firms in uh, New York, and when we had kids, she stopped working temporarily. She ended up founding a women-run business consultancy called the Moment Consulting Group, which is now an agency and it's growing in size. And I've watched how she coaches a lot of women through these processes of of often leaving the workforce in their hopes temporarily, and many of them do do that temporarily, and some of them, it ends up being longer than they'd like, and they tell her how stuck they feel I think one of the most powerful things she's told me is that a lot of the, the framing of what it is to be a mom, especially to young kids, is, is that it's sort of apart from work, but also the way she describes it, and I've heard her say this to a lot of the women who come and speak to her, is the skills you develop as a young mom are incredibly useful and valuable in the workforce. Yeah. They are the, the kinds, I'm gonna, I'm gonna relay that, I'm gonna take, bounce that applause off and give it to my wife because mm-hmm. she's, she's very articulate about it. And she basically says, let's list all the things that you've done as a young mom, the multitasking, the, the management of the household, the you know, all the sort of very gender stereotypic things that are done more by women than men are phenomenally useful in almost every industry and almost every workplace. And so a lot of it is sort of a, a reframing of what it means to be a mom, a mom to, to young kids. Um, and I've seen how she talks to a lot of the women that she consults for. and they then retool their CVs, their resumes, and basically say to the people that they're handing those resumes to, this was not a period of being out of the workforce, it was a period of developing a tremendous array of skills that I was forced into developing by very trying, often trying circumstances, and a lot of them have have made huge headway doing that, and so I think that's, that's one thing that at least that reframing, I think, is really useful.
0: And what can men do to help women overcome these barriers?
1: Yeah, I mean, so <laughs> for me personally, um, I I think a lot of men, in, at least in my experience, are blindsided by aspects. I, I, we're talking about being parents to young kids, I imagine, when you first become a parent. Um, I think men are often blindsided by what the change means for them and for their wives and. What, what exactly is required of them, and what what's involved in being a, a dad to young kids. And the the m- most useful conversations my wife and I had were, were about sort of navigating our relative roles in, in that whole process. So I sort of imagined, m- completely mistakenly, that I would just kind of go on doing my work stuff, and that I would support the family enterprise, and I would be a dad as well. Um, but so many things shifted and changed for us, and, and I've a lot of it went unsaid for a long time, and I think that was very hard for my wife and quite hard for me as well. But then we had these great conversations that were very explicit about what exactly is going on here, what's shifting, what's changing, what needs to be done. I think that sort of explicit kind of conversation really, really helps in these, these moments. Um, and I, I think it's the kind of conversation that doesn't happen organically necessarily. You actually have to say, this is what we've got to talk about, let's talk about it. We, we found it very useful. Once we understood that we were on the same page and we were sort of a team again. It felt for a little while like we were in opposition, sort of wrestling over who was doing what. And that conversation um, really fixed things a lot for us. It was like we were, instead of playing on opposite sides of the tennis net, we became double's partner right. again, and um, that was really useful. Communication, go figure. Huge, right. yeah. <laughs> I think everyone knows that already, but yes, it yeah. was big for us.
0: Yeah. So- Change can be scary, and sometimes getting out of the rut means dramatic change. Yeah. What advice do you have for those afraid to take that step?
1: Yeah, so, uh, you know, this is this is sort of the heart of the book, is the idea that there are essentially two kinds of changes, right? There are changes that are visited upon you, some big life change. There's a, a brilliant author named Bruce Filer who writes about this. He has a book called Life is in the Transitions, and he writes about the fact that he... Sp- He's spoken to hundreds of people, and on average, we have modest changes in our lives every 12 to 18 months. These are, you know, modest things that change, but every roughly five to 10 years, we have what he calls life quakes. Life quakes are major life changes. They're like a change in career, or unfortunately, the death of someone we love, or a divorce, or whatever it might be, These ver- or the birth of a child, which is obviously fantastic, but also complicated. And so he talks about these changes, and. So even if what you're doing is working now, you will at some point have to shift. You'll have to pivot. So those are the ones that we don't have a lot of choice over, but we also have the kinds of changes you're describing, which is when we feel stuck and can do something about it. I think um, one, one thing to keep in mind that I've always found really useful is that many of the things we choose to do are to some extent revocable, and we often forget that. Like if you make a change, if you make a shift in your career or a certain decision to change something that's been working for you, it's worth thinking about how how that can be undone or at least you can shift further from there. I think we often make decisions and sort of assume it's the be all and end all, mm-hmm. but there's a real fluidity to life and um, often things can be shifted once they've been changed. And I think a lot of people find that really, um, really valuable to think that way. Um, you know, I, I, my, my background is in decision science. So I study how people make decisions and how they should make decisions. And there are so many different models for how to make big decisions, especially about coping with change. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the, the best one, I think, is, especially for big, important decisions, is to really weigh the pluses and the minuses and actually create an almost like a spreadsheet and say, here are all the good, here are all the bad. And when I weigh it up, this seems to be the, the route that makes the most sense to me.
0: So, in your book, you talk about these preconceived notions of success. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that? How do we debunk this notion of what success is?
1: Yeah, I I mean, I think success, it's really interesting, because often when we're we're doing what we consider to be a successful thing, we're sort of in that, that mode of doing the same thing for a while, that objectively from the outside looks to be successful, we still feel stuck because there's always something more. This is a sort of strangely human thing that we, no matter where we are, no matter what we've achieved, we always look a little bit higher. We look at people who've achieved just a little bit more. No matter how much money we have, there are people who have more. No matter how successful we are in business, there's someone who's done slightly more and so on. So I think it's very easy to lose sight of the objective fact that often we are doing much better than we might feel when we keep doing this thing of looking upward. Mm -hmm. Um, This in in social psychology is known as upward social comparison, and it's a universal human thing. This is what we do. We're always looking at people above. Um, And it's really damaging to self-esteem and well-being because it's something that we we could, and you can do your entire life. You can never feel satisfied with the things you have. Um, And I I think that's maybe what you were referring to, this idea that um, success is is very comparative for humans and that constant comparison can be quite damaging and so it's it's uh, it's worth thinking about all the things you do have all the successes you've had you know i'm going through this process of launching a book and i'm kind of my wife knows this about me my friends know this about me i'm a little bit of a pessimist about this stuff i'm like well nothing's working out it's like my just my natural tendency and i'm quite risk averse and my wife will stop me every now and again. She'll say, let's look at the things that have worked out really well. And she's right. I'm constantly looking at authors who have sold more books and all that sort of stuff. And it's really silly to do that. It just undermines your well-being. doesn't make you more effective. Um, so I think that, that way of thinking about success as relative to other people is is, uh, is a little bit broken.
0: And you almost had to get over your own right. Rec- because this is your third book, is that right? My third, yeah. So Tell us the process of becoming an author with that first book.
1: Yeah, it was a funny process, Um, speaking of change. So I I give this talk to freshmen at NYU, and it's it's a talk about early on in your career just saying yes, or not just your career, but as an undergrad, as a freshman, say yes. What that basically means is it should be a period of exploration, and there's a lot of research on this, that there, there need to be periods of your life where you may not know that this thing that you're gonna say yes to will produce dividends, But it, and and you may say yes to 10 things and only one of them is valuable, you just don't know which one at the time. So in this talk to the freshmen, I show them four emails that I've received over the last 20 years that changed my life. And one of the four emails, and at the time, I wanted to say no to all of them because I was like, I'm too busy, I've got other stuff going on. But this one email came from someone who had read a piece that had been written about some of my research and said, hey, I don't know if you've thought about this, I know you're a first year professor at NYU and so you're probably worried about tenure and other stuff, But would you like to write a book? I'm a book agent. And I was like, ah, it's a bit early. I don't think I want to do that yet. It was a total accident. And I was like, well, you know, I think this is a good time to explore. Let's at least figure out if it's the thing to do. So I said, yes, I'm interested. And they said, well, just write a 10-page proposal on on what you think the book could be about. I sat with it for about a month. I sent it to the agent. She looked at it, and she said, yeah, it's it's pretty good. Um, I, I don't know if it's perfect, but let's send it out to publishers, and we'll see what happens and one of the publishers was interested, and at that point I was like, I guess I better write the book now. <laughs> and it, the train ran away, and suddenly I was writing a book. And I had an 18-month contract, so I had to write it in 18 months, and it, it did better than I anticipated, and ended up paving the way for a second book. And so this, this sort of approach to the world of exploring and saying yes, and being expansive about all your opportunities, I think, at, particularly at strategic moments in your career or your life is really valuable, and it's, it, that's how I ended up getting started in this world.
0: Great. So is there anything else you'd like the audience to know about Anatomy of a Breakthrough?
1: Um, I guess the one thing I would say is, um, so the last section of the book is about action. And the last chapter is titled, Action Above All. And um, there's this this musician. He's a rock musician named um, Jeff Tweedy from the band Wilco. And um, he's fantastic. He's he's not just a writer of music, but he writes uh, books as well. And he's been a creator for a long time. He's been a, a writer of various things for decades. And he talks about this process of getting stuck over and over again. Like some days he wakes up and he's like, I don't want to be creative, that demands so much of me. But that's what my bread and butter is, I have to do it. So he's developed this really great strategy where he, he basically, he says, I know that more than anything the thing that gets me unstuck is to act. And it doesn't even matter if the action that I'm taking right now gets, takes me more sideways than forwards. It's the act of acting that kind of greases the wheels for further action that is itself more productive. So the best thing he has learned to do is, is to, to do those first bits of action. So the question then is what does that look like if you don't feel like acting on that day? So as a writer of music and as a writer of books, he's, he's got this great strategy where he says to himself, what is the very worst sentence I could write right now? What is the worst phrase of music I could write right now? And that's really easy to do because he's got. There are no standards. He's taken his his standards are very high. He drops them all the way down to the ground, and he starts writing. And it's terrible, it's horrible stuff. He reads it and he's like, "What is wrong with me?" But he's acting, and by acting a little bit, he somehow certain things start. You know, the cogs in his head that are a little rusty start moving again, and he finds that it's a, a really productive way to move forward. So, in general, when you're stuck, any kind of action is better than no action, and so. Not being self-critical and self-evaluative about those actions seems to be a really good unsticker. So a couple
0: speakers have given us homework today. Um, what is the homework that
1: you think we should do? Um, well, that's a good question. Um, short of buying the book, which would be good homework, <laughs> um, aside from that, I would say that uh, maybe think about the thing that's that you're most stuck in i've been i've run the survey for a long time now on uh, thousands of people around the world and everyone with a little bit of time can figure out that there's something that they wish would change that's been stubbornly in place for a while think about that thing and do one do one small jeff tweedy like action even if it's a sideways action you don't have to do this, but I've found that it's very helpful to do this, and that's that's probably the most useful piece of homework I can give. As a professor, I'm very mindful that homework is not well received in general, but I hope, I hope you'll see that as an optional assignment. Awesome, thank you so much.
0: Thank you so much for joining us. We will see you again next Thursday at 6 p.m. For more information about the Chamber and our podcast, please visit us at ghwcc.org.